Thanks for tuning in to Tax Strategy Digest, where we explore the fascinating world of finance. Join us as we dive into the stories, insights, and experiences of experts, thought leaders, and everyday people who are making a difference in this field. Through engaging conversations and thought-provoking discussions, we'll take a deep dive into the latest research, trends, and innovations shaping finance. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn something new on this journey here with us. Welcome to this episode of Tax Strategy Digest. Today, our guest is Ethan Gao. Ethan has owned several rental properties, made over 400 private loans secured by real estate, both single family and commercial, invested in over 100 single family fix and flip projects, and is a general partner on multiple commercial and multifamily projects, totaling over 2,000 units. His primary role on deals is Gap Funder, where the sponsorship team has raised around 70% of the limited partnership equity, but does not have enough time to raise the remainder. Ethan comes in and lends the remainder to the team so that the deal can get done on time. Ethan, really, really excited to have you on this uh, this episode and to dive into what you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So Ethan, I, I know you're very humble, but I would love if you told us your story and um you graduated from Cornell with your bachelor's in econ at 19 and then from law school um, at Columbia at 22. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, I skipped a grade in junior high and then I graduated high school in three years and I graduated college in three years. So that's that's how I went to law school when I was 19. Wow. OK, so tell us your story. I mean, how did you get into you know real estate? How did you get into um yeah let's first let's start with real estate um how did you eventually get into that yeah let me just start a little bit closer to the beginning so uh sure. i'm from a i'm i myself am an immigrant i moved here as a little kid i didn't speak any english i had to go uh to english as second language classes to learn english uh in elementary school um you know i was always good at school and stuff like that so that's why i skipped a grade and then graduated from high school in three years i also grew up in a small town. So it was super lame. And uh, my parents, uh, you know, nobody really likes living with their parents when they're a teenager. So I decided to go to college early. I met my wife the first day of class. She had just turned 18. So we, um, we've been together for over 23 years. And we have five kids together. At Cornell, she decided she wanted to be an investment banker in New York City because she heard they made a lot of money. That sounded great to me. So that's why I went to law school at Columbia, because I wanted to be in New York City while she pursued her career in uh, banking. Um, so I graduated from Columbia in 2006 with a law degree when I was 22. I was probably three to five years younger than most of my classmates. And I started working at a huge law firm doing mergers and acquisitions. My wife at that point had moved on from investment banking. She got a job at a big private equity firm. Um, and then uh, she ended up getting an MBA from Harvard. So we moved to Boston for a couple of years. So we spent our first kind of five to five, my first five years work experience were at two law firms in Boston and New York doing mergers and acquisitions related type of work. Um, uh, after a while, I got a job as an in-house attorney at a mutual fund in Hong Kong. My wife and I had our first kid in Hong Kong and we decided, you know, we didn't really like living there with a kid and we weren't gonna move to Boston or New York because they were just really expensive, cold, uh, high taxes and we're not from there anyways. So uh, I decided to move to Texas, uh, interviewed for jobs in Houston and Dallas, uh, basically uh, got a job uh, with somebody that I'd sort of worked with before 
at a prior firm. So we already had a level of familiarity. Um, since we've been in Houston, uh, we moved here in 2013, you know, 10 years ago. Um, my wife stopped working outside the home as we proceeded to have a bunch of these kids. And like I joke around all the time, you know, I have five kids, but at any moment, two of them are basically uh, for sale at a distressed seller valuation. Um, <laughs> I, I, and it switches. It's, it's not the same two all the time. Um, so I was in a situation where my wife and I had saved millions of dollars from our super high-end, very stressful jobs. Uh, we paid a ton of income tax. We were just really good savers. Um, and then I was in a situation where I made a really, really large W-2 income, but I had very uh, variable and very intense hours and work environment. So for me, it wasn't super interesting. A lot of my colleagues, you know, they made very similar incomes as me, but they just didn't really care about saving their money or they just weren't able to. So it was always a little bit weird when, you know, somebody who literally made the exact same amount of money as me, what, you know, and we're talking 300, $400,000 per year of W2. So pretty significant pay, not, not, you know, insignificant. Um, you know, we both start the year and we'd make the same. And then somehow at the end of the year, I would have saved like 200 K and then this guy would have saved like negative 5k. So it's really, really, really difficult to compete against really smart and hardworking people when they're very bad at saving money and they literally do not have a choice. I had choices because I saved a ton of money. I did not have to work at that job. I didn't really have to work at any job. Uh, they were basically stuck due to their lifestyle and their inability to save money. So um, competing against like, you know, I'll describe them as rabid dogs with no uh, solution out. It, it's a tough thing to do to compete against people like that because they really, um, they really are stuck there. Whereas you're kind of, you know, you don't really have to be there. So, so the motivation is just not quite the same and the, the intensity as well as the burden isn't the same. So I would just literally Google in my office whenever I had to stay there late and had a rough day at work. I would just Google stuff like, I'm already rich. How do I not have to work at this shitty job? Um, it led me down two specific paths. One was buying a franchise and the other was real estate investing. So I talked to a bunch of different franchises, a bunch of different franchise finders and consultants. And I was like, hey, I got money. I don't want to do any work and I want to make a bunch of money. And they said, Ethan, that's great. Uh, if you find that awesome, call us, but that's not what these are. And then what most of them were, were actually, I would have to buy a subpar job, you know, like making Subway sandwiches or running a laundromat or something. And I was like, well, I have this job where I make 300K where it's not great but I don't have to run a laundromat or make a Subway sandwich. Like that's actually a better, and, and I don't have to pay to get that job. Like I already have it. Like I've already paid for law school and college, but I don't have to pay again for a shitty job. So I was like, this doesn't make any sort of sense. Um, and then I investigated real estate. I bought a rental property, you know, bought it full retail price, uh, all cash, no mortgage, 
hired a property management company that was just terrible. I replaced the property management company with myself. Uh, and then uh, I looked at my returns after a year of owning it. And I was like, I made 4%. And I was like, I could have just bought a CD and made 4% and not had to do any work. So I was like, you know, this doesn't make any sense. I read articles about people making a ton of money in real estate. I watch webinars of people that say they barely graduated from high school and they started with negative $7 and now, you know, they got a hundred doors. Like something doesn't compute here. You know, I went to Cornell when I was 16, I already had millions of dollars. Like how am I not able to make money in real estate? So then that's when I did deep dive due diligence into real estate investing, specifically single family homes. Cause that's kind of what I knew, you know, I'd live in a single family home and you know, everybody can basically understand a house. It's not particularly complicated. Um, so after doing a ton of due diligence, I decided, you know, for somebody like me that understood law and who had cash already, what I should do is make hard money loans to people that actually buy houses, fix them up and flip them. And that's an opportunity for me to charge them a much higher, you know, interest rate than normally uh, somebody would be willing to take on. So I've done tons of hard money loans. Uh, here in Houston, Texas area, you know, probably over 400 over the past seven, eight years or so. And then about three years ago, one of my friends said, hey, Ethan, why are you messing around with the single family stuff? It's kind of small. Did you know that because you have net worth and liquidity that you can sign on other people's loans as a guarantor or a co-guarantor? And then you can get brought into the partnership team on much bigger projects. And I was just literally just like floored. You know, I'd gone to Cornell, Columbia. My wife had worked at JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs. She had an MBA from Harvard. I had never heard about this. And I said, this is why I immigrated to America so that I could become rich and then I could sign on stuff and then not do that much work and then become richer. I was like, that's the American dream to me. So I was like, I need to do, I need to sign on as many of these as humanly possible. So. Three years ago is when I started uh, really heavily networking in commercial and multifamily real estate. Um, there's a lot of online meetup groups and conferences and, and things like that. And I've you know, built a little bit of a reputation in that community as somebody that signs on loans, somebody that does legal work, PPM, syndication, fund formation paperwork. Uh, I sell life insurance, um, you know, a lot of the liquidity that I show from loans I sign are cash value in my life insurance policies some of which I've owned for over 10 years. Um, and then I make these, you know, super emergency loans to investors that are just in a panic where in a, a large investor of theirs backed out last minute and they just can't replace them in time. So those are the things I do and I'm kind of known for in this multifamily and commercial uh, real estate groups across the country. And it's kind of interesting, these groups, it's usually uh, investors that cover multiple markets where they look more nationwide. So there's probably hundreds, if not thousands of real estate investors here in Houston, Texas, where I've lived for 10 years, who I will never know, who I will never meet. But then in the community of people that cover multiple markets, you know, maybe they do Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. So they show up to some online meetups. Like I know a ton of those people. I want to dive into something that you said that was really, really interesting. Um, you used your cash value from your life insurance policies in order to fund some of these projects. Would you mind kind of talking a little bit about that and how that works? Sure. So life insurance policies, um, you know, for, for those of you who don't know that much about them, you know, life insurance, the 
it pays a benefit if you die, right? That's basically the, the whole uh, point of it is if you die, then your family or your heirs or you know, whatever charity gets a hopefully big amount of money. Um, there are certain types of life insurance policies that build cash value along the way. And you can borrow either from the cash value directly from the insurance company that issued you the policy, or you can borrow against the cash value from a lender or a bank. Uh, generally, I prefer borrowing against the policy instead of from the policy. Uh, that's historically been a more attractive uh, and economical option. Um, so from time to time, if I don't have as much reserves and I need to you know, make somebody a large loan or whatever for an emergency, I will borrow it, fr I'll borrow it uh, from or against the life insurance policies and fund it that way. And then for signing on loans, what's important to the lender is how much liquidity do I have? So most lenders will consider cash value in life insurance policies to be liquidity because uh, life insurance companies are regulated. They're pretty safe. They mostly just invest in bonds and real estate, and then they collect premiums from clients and then they do the actual business of insurance. So, you know, they can't be collecting a million dollars of premium and then paying out like 17 billion of claims the next year. Like not all of their clients are going to die at the same time. And if right. they do, they're very unlucky and they probably messed up and they needed to reinsure their, uh, their pool and they just screwed that up, which Definitely. They, they, they don't, but, but yeah, that, that would be, you know, one of the risk factors. So I think that a lot of people have this weird misconception about, um, insurance and, and life insurance and people, you know, selling life insurance, um, products. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I know exactly why it is. Um, so life insurance agents are similar to realtors. It is a low and no offense to life insurance agents and no offense to realtors, but I'm sure you'll take offense. Um, life insurance is not a hard test to pass. Um, my wife became licensed with, you know, she'd been a financial professional before and she's very smart. I think she got like a 96% uh, uh, score on her tests, which you can just take at like a, a Pearson testing center a couple days. Uh, as long as you register a couple days in advance, I think she studied like 10 hours. She flipped through some online materials. Um, so I'm not saying she's super duper smart. I'm just saying the test is not that hard. Um, similar for realtors, it, it's not that high of a barrier job, barrier to entry job. And there's a ton of people that do it. It's a sales slash commission only job, which means you don't make any money unless you sell something. So um, that means uh, generally these people are going to be incredibly annoying because all they want to do is to sell you something. And sometimes they're selling you the wrong thing at the wrong price. You're not even the right client. And even if you're right client, they're selling you the wrong thing because it's such a low barrier to entry job. So like with life insurance agents and with realtors, I think the, you know, the number, the amount of churn and the percentage of churn is massive. Most people that join those ranks will leave within two years of becoming licensed and not come back. Uh, most realtors and life insurance agents can just sell their friends, their close friends and family members, sometimes the wrong products. And then after that, they don't have the technical expertise or the sales ability or even the staying power to stay. Because if they don't sell enough, they're either not permitted to stay 
where they just literally don't make enough money where they have to get a, a different job. So that's what happens a lot. So you have a lot of um, not particularly experienced or qualified people uh, engaging in high pressure tactic type of sales. And a lot of times what that means is a lot of um, the wrong clients get sold the wrong products. So a lot of people that really don't have a lot of business even caring about cash value life insurance will get sold it and then uh, they won't like it after a couple years and then they'll go complain to whoever and then they'll go on Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey and then they hate it too. And I mean, quite honestly, um, Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey, they have pretty good advice in general, which is for most, especially lower middle class and lower Americans, they should 100% focus on paying off their debt and not incurring high, you know, cutting spending, lowering debt. I mean, that's literally a not like that's a non-controversial strategy and everybody should do that, especially from the lower economic classes. Uh, but they both hate life insurance. And I've listened to them a lot and they just quite honestly, neither of them really understand it. And they're just saying something and it's almost like converting a religion. If you were just born a Roman Catholic and your family has always been Roman Catholic and you never really cared, I will not be able to convert you into a Muslim. I'm not even gonna bother trying. So they, you know, I view them as, as very, very, um, I forgot what that word is called, but dogmatic about it. They're not even willing to learn about it or to correct their misunderstanding about the products and they get and, and you know whatever they're doing they're doing a great job because they make a ton of money so right. there's no you know and i think at this point they probably can't reverse because then they're going to look stupid and weird that they've been anti-life insurance for like 10 years and then all of a sudden they change then they might lose a huge percentage of their audience that says oh i thought you were smart now you sound like a moron you just change your mind so how how much of what you know today how much of your knowledge came from your time being an m a attorney um in new york extremely little so okay. i operated in very high intensity high attention to detail jobs with very annoying co-workers and counterparties uh real estate is generally full of not that high of attention to detail uh i wouldn't say they're low intensity but they're usually more salesy and less technical and there's obviously exceptions to everything, right? But being an M&A type of attorney only helped me insofar as I saved a ton of money. I could read contracts in like 17 seconds, whereas somebody just will refuse to open the file or they read it and they're like, this looks like Chinese or something. Um, so I can read almost any type of document and generally know what it's talking about really fast. And then I just, I'm just conditioned to work extremely hard. Like I just don't mind. And also just my personality type and the way that I was trained on Wall Street is I just respond to everything as fast as I possibly can. So like yesterday, you know, you and I had a call, you sent me a, a playback a recording of a presentation you gave. I watched it that night and then I booked you for this today. So within 24 hours, we went from uh, you just knew my name because you saw that I signed up for your uh, webinar that I did not attend to I watched your webinar. And then now I'm being interviewed on your podcast within 24 hours. And that's just how I operate. Yeah, no. And I actually, um, I noticed something on your LinkedIn because we've been connected for a little while. We've talked back and forth um, on there just in messages. And um, one of my favorite things, the reason I was so excited to actually uh, to meet you was um, you, and I might butcher it, so I apologize, but in your bio, you say, if someone can move faster than us, I would like to meet them and learn from them. 
And I just thought that was the coolest thing because you were saying, look, I'm so confident in what I do. And if someone does it better, I need to learn from them. And I I just thought that was awesome. Yeah, I'm always looking to improve. I mean, I I really don't, on the emergency loans, the reason that uh, we get called a lot and the reason that we can make money doing it and the reason that we're even involved at all is um, because we usually have a lot of liquidity that we already have to have to sign on loans anyways. Uh, We are corporate attorneys. So if somebody needed a deal in five seconds, I could literally drop everything in what I'm doing and go work on that right now and do the paperwork myself if I had to. And then I'm just dependable and reliable, right? So when people refer me, they're always like, well, if Ethan doesn't call you back really fast, he's probably either asleep in a meeting or, you know, he died. It's really one of those three. So I essentially charge a premium for the fact that I'm dependable and reliable because the specific situation I'm looking for to be involved in is a situation where someone was unreliable. So when one of your large investors backs out on you last minute and basically screws you, I am the opposite of that. I will be extremely dependable, extremely reliable. You can call me anytime, weekends, nights. I don't really care unless I'm asleep, dead, or in a meeting I'm going to pick up. Unless you're just super annoying, then you know maybe I won't. But generally, I, I pick up. And um, that, that's why, you know, people uh, trust me to do these type of deals, because I tell them, look, if Friday night, you and I decide, yeah, I'm going to lend you two million bucks, it'll be there on Monday, you can go feel free to play with your kids over the weekend, you can go feel free to watch college football, uh, watch Alabama versus Texas A&M, or get Dallas Cowboys versus whoever they're playing this <laughs> weekend, and not have to worry about whether Ethan the guy's going to do it or not. Yeah. Because unless I'm dead in a meeting, or uh, what was the other, the third one? Asleep. Uh, asleep. Yeah, like you, you're going to hear. That's a premium service, right? So we, we're not, we never, t- you know, one of the first things we always tell everybody is you, you are asking for the emergency loan. You are going to be charged emergency surge pricing. Like this isn't just regular Uber. This is Uber, you know, surge, 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 surge. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. It was going to be, do you get to obviously charge a premium price for this because of your dependability, your reliability, um, and just the ability to pick up these deals, do everything in-house and um, just be so responsive with everything. That's exactly right. I mean, that's that's literally how, I mean, there's not a lot of people that even do this. And quite honestly, I'm not even saying this just so I don't want other people in this business, which I definitely don't want competition. <laughs> I mean, I'll just be flat out honest. Like I would prefer no competition. Yeah. Right. But just in general, let me just give you a sense of my schedule. Sure. People do not call me like four weeks in advance and say, hey, I need this money. I need this amount of money by this day. You know, please get all the work done. Like, no problem. We're definitely going to borrow the money. People don't do that. People call me today. They're like, hey, can I get money like right now? And I'm like, I just met you. I don't even know who you are at this point. No. Or they say, hey, I need money tomorrow. And I'm like, man. You know, maybe you just explain to me the fact pattern, you know, maybe it's possible. So I'm usually only given about one week's notice on average. So it requires a lot of dropping of what I'm doing that's not urgent to focus on a specific situation and make sure it's the right thing for us. So I honestly think so. If, so, if, for example, if you're just a really rich guy with a ton of money, but you're not a lawyer and you don't really like being on call all the time. This is not the business for you. If you're a lawyer, 
but you're not a really rich guy and you're happy to work all day, all night, but you have to go line up the money. So some, you know, so if uh, Paul calls you and says, Hey man, I need $2 million. And you say, okay, sounds great. And then you immediately have to go call a bunch of other people and say, Hey, please give me $2 million. This is not the business for you. That is going to slow you down so much. You are not reliable or defendable. You're most likely just going to crash someone's deal and they're going to hate you because they're going to, they thought you could do it and you couldn't do it. Right. And then if you are uh, a rich guy and you're a lawyer and you're okay, just being on call all the time, then you're basically me. You're just like a version of me at that point. So without all three of those things all being true, I really think this is a very bad business and a very bad lifestyle to be in. You know, lots of people I know that have five kids like myself, they don't really want to work the weekends or nights and they don't really want to drop things they're doing to have somebody call them last minute. Hey, can you please send me $2 million in 24 hours? Very few people really want to entertain that. Yeah. Um, what is a typical timeline for your investments that you're making? Are these all fix and flip projects? Is it relatively short um, investment timeframes or are they, um, you know, are they long-term sort of projects that you're in for the long haul? So on loan guarantor deals where I'm signing on a loan, those are going to be two to seven year holds. Um, okay. Some of them, almost all of those are going to be multifamily and commercial. So I've done industrial self-storage apartments. Um, I've looked into like medical office. I've looked into drug rehab. I've done lots of different commercial projects. So those are just the life of the deal. Like, you know, if, 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 if the Fed just never drops interest rates again, and we have a horrible, you know, next seven years, cool story, man. We're going to be in that deal for seven years. We're going to wait till they drop rates, and then we're going to put a for sale side up, and hopefully we're going to make some money. But in the meantime, we're not going to really be a distressed seller, right? Um, on the emergency loans, uh, it is truly an emergency loan. If you can't articulate to me how you're going to pay me back within three to six months, I'm not going to be interested in lending you the money. Like if you're like, hey, I'm going to pay you back in six months and one day, I'm already not that interested. I'm specifically looking for three to four month payback. I think that is the perfect amount of time to pay me back. I would have made enough money to, to be worth it, right? If you borrow a bunch of money from me for like two days, even if I charge you a huge APR, that's not a large amount of money, especially for the amount of work we do. Right. So three to four months is really perfect for us in terms of maximizing the amount of uh, uh, return for the amount of work we have to do. Um, now, you know, if somebody uh, is just not able to pay me back on time, we just extend them, especially if they can make partial payments where they can show us a plan that makes sense. Uh, if somebody's going to be kind of an asshole and not make partial payments, not have a plan and not be good to work with, then uh, hopefully we would have screened all of those people out initially, but not going to have a hundred percent rate. Just like, you know, I met my wife the first day of class, so I have a hundred percent rate, but that could have worked out extremely poorly. You know, all of us have friends that, you know, thought that they married the right person and then went through a just horrible, you know, divorce. Right. So you, it, it's really, really rare to have a hundred percent hit rate. So, where are you getting these these leads coming in? Are they just how are they meeting you? Is it just a referral network from people local to you, or is it nationwide? Where, where are these people coming from? It's nationwide. So, like I said before, I belong to a lot of these multifamily and commercial meetups that are nationwide. Okay. So there's thousands of investors here in Houston, Texas, where I've lived for ten years. I don't know who they are. I will never meet them. They will never hear about me, even though we literally live in the same city. 
nationwide, there's a ton of people that look at multiple markets. So they look at Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, and they might live in New Hampshire or they might live in Canada. But because they go to these meetups, because they have a broader scope of places they're willing to look, a lot of these people already either know me or they know someone who knows me. So my phone is constantly ringing with, hey, I was referred to you by Bob. And I'm always like, Bob who? I know a lot of Bobs. And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, okay, well, this is already like not starting out great. Your memory sucks. Um, so I just get tons and tons of referrals. Okay. And so if you have a, um, if you have clients right now that are calling you, I mean, is the deal flow any different than what it was back, you know, maybe pre COVID during COVID with the lower interest rates have interest rates affected your business at all? Uh, interest rates have affected all businesses and in particular interest rate sensitive businesses, uh, which is basically any business that depends on leverage, which real estate definitely qualifies. Um, so the specific thing that I'm really, really looking for is a situation where an investor backs, a large investor backs out last minute and the lead sponsors can't solve the problem themselves. So usually that's a bigger check, right? So if it's like, oh my gosh, my sister backed out of a hundred K commitment. Okay. Well, maybe your mom can just give you a hundred K. Like that's not usually like an impossible problem to solve. If a $2 million investor backs out, uh, that probably is an impossible problem for you to solve unless your mom has $2 million, right? Or you can find 20 people to give you a hundred K, which, which is really my competition, right? It's, Hey man, are you willing to pay Ethan Gal a premium to borrow all 2 million from him? One, one-stop shop, easy to work with. He makes you a commitment. He gets it done. He's reliable, dependable, or you want to take your chances with 20 random people with a hundred K each of whom is going to wire you from different accounts, from different sources, different lawyers, different, you know, personalities, you know, th th that's why you pay the Ethan Gal premium. So the answer to your question is with the specific back pattern I'm looking for, it, it, it's, it's just highly random. Investors will back out for all kinds of reasons. Some of them make sense and some of them are just stupid. Um, in general, I can tell you 2023 has been a lot weaker on deal flow. Right. Uh, there's just not a lot of transactions. Like, unless you're a distressed seller, you would not pick, like just in general, if you were a seller, you would not pick 2023 as a time to sell. Like it's either you got a loan coming up, you really need the money or you have some other situation. Like you are basically choosing to sell into a, like not a good uh, price point, right? If you could just wait a year or two years, you have a much higher chance of, of hitting a better time. Um, so there's fewer transactions, but I have seen transactions be more difficult in terms of this year. I've seen a lot of, in, uh, sponsors just not be able to raise enough money. It's a very challenging debt and equity environment. You know, right now, some random doctor, lawyer, or yourself, uh, CPA accountant can just go buy a United States treasury with zero credit risk, essentially zero risk at all you know even market risk right and make like 5.5 percent crazy you live in a, and if, you know and if you live in a state with a state income tax you don't even pay that so you're making an even higher yield that's yeah. no risk why in the world would you go invest in some random guy's deal and he shows you like a 10 percent irr 
like for a 450 basis point risk spread, you're willing to take unlimited risk to do that. I think that's a stupid trade. Now, all of you doing that, uh, I didn't mean to insult your intelligence, but that, but the way that I price risk, I think the premium needs to be way higher. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. I, I mean, yeah, just like you said, treasuries right now are extremely high. There's there's not a lot of reasons why it wouldn't make sense for someone to invest a significant portion of money if they had that cash available to do so. Um, but I did want to ask one more thing before I forget. Um, what's the quickest transaction turnaround time that you've had so far? I did a deal same day. Somebody wow. called me at 9 a.m. and said, hey, bro, I need $6 million. I said, I barely know you. Cool story, bro. Uh, and then I wired him uh, six million at three p.m. that day. But he must have had a great pitch. Uh, I already knew the deal. Multiple okay. people had called me about the deal, so I'd already fully reviewed the deal, and I knew one of the business partners in that deal extremely well with prior business dealings. That is not a normal situation. We would normally not move that fast. But it was a combination of already knowing the deal, knowing one of the business partners involved, as well as, um, you know, we, we quite honestly, uh, we got the best deal ever on that deal because okay. it was a really large amount of money. A lot was at stake. There was a huge amount of earnest money that was about to be lost. Right. And then this was just a much stronger than average deal. So if you're going to lose a deal, lose like an average deal, don't lose one of the best deals you know, ever. Right. What That's is why the was willing to give up more and we were happy to comply. What is a, a normal time frame for you? I think you said it was about a week. Is that correct? Yeah. A week is uh, a week. We can do almost everything. Okay. Two weeks is ideal. Uh, three weeks is a luxury. Four weeks. It's almost like, why even bother calling me? Like you're probably <laughs> not desperate enough to pay my premium, Like you should wait two weeks until you know that you need to pay this premium and then you call me like a month in advance is almost too much notice. Got it. Okay. Um, well, perfect. Ethan, I want to, uh, start going ahead and, uh, wrapping this up, but on this podcast, the one thing I do ask every guest, um, is what is your why? And I think I might be able to guess it's got to do with all of, uh, all five of your kids and your wife, but, uh, tell us a little bit about your why and why you do what you do. Yeah, so that's a great guess, and it's mostly true, but there, there's a couple of extra things that, that may not be deducible or inferable. Uh, number one is I'm an immigrant. I basically came here with my parents. We had nothing. We continued to have nothing until I went to college, and then I got a job. Uh, so for me, when I walked to that round Cornell and Columbia and even my wife at Harvard, um, you know, we walk around and you look at some of the buildings, and they're called like, Rockefeller Hall, right? It's not because any of the current kids that are named Rockefeller did anything worth a shit. They were just born into the right family. Um, so to me, I have to be that guy that creates something like that for my family. So I am the patriot, you know, I am the grand patriarch, the patriarch, the guy that that started it. So that's important to me, legacy and dynasty. Uh, number two, while I love my kids, oh my gosh, uh, five kids is number one, way too many. I got to just tell you guys, like, if I had to choose this over again, I would not choose that whatsoever. Um, it's like when you play a video game and it says, you know, this is your first time playing the game. You want easy, medium, hard, 
somehow I picked like extraordinarily stupidly hard <laughs> by by choosing to have five kids. Uh, so I would not choose that. I would prefer to play on easy mode, actually. Um, so uh, while I do love my kids and I want to spend some time with them, they're young enough where I have time and flexibility in my schedule to truly try to build something great. And I want them to be the inheritors of the legacy and continue it. So for a guy like me, I had no choice but to go work at a job that paid a lot of money, but had a lot of hours and had a lot of challenging colleagues and politics. Like that was literally the only reasonable choice, right? Like I'm not necessarily an entrepreneur. I'm not going to invent something. So I needed to, you know, work at a super fancy corporate job and just make a bunch of money and save it. Uh, my kids now all have the option of doing that. And I hope that most of them do. I really want somebody else to whip their butt for three to five years on Wall Street, tell them that they're pieces of crap and that they're replaceable and they're not special. And then I would love it if they come back and then work in my family business. Now, I'm also happy to tell them that they're pieces of crap and they're replaceable. It's just less believable when I'm their father. It sounds like for you, it's family, legacy, um, and just leaving your kids with something valuable that they can enjoy and take on and uh, make it their own one day. Correct. And I don't even need it to be enjoyable, to be honest. I just need them to continue it and make it better. And eventually I would like their kids to go to Harvard and say, oh, that's Gal Hall. That's my great grandfather uh, lent a bunch of people money on short notice and charged them a fortune. And that's <laughs> how we got here to Harvard. Well, I love it. Ethan, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day to come on here. I'm so glad that we got connected yesterday and uh, we've been talking back and forth, both on LinkedIn, over the phone. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you. If anyone uh, wants to reach out to you, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, so I check almost everything. The The email that I check the most, I check all, all of them, but it's Ethan at galfamilyoffice.com. So E-T-H-A-N at G-A-O familyoffice.com. Um, I also uh, post on LinkedIn. If you want to message me there, that's great. Uh, I check those as well. I try to post, you know, once in a while, if I have something funny to say, I'll try to be humorous about something. Perfect. But most of my jokes, most of my posts are truly like jokes. Okay. Not so a lot of people read them and they're probably thinking this guy's a moron. <laughs> this guy. like, like almost half of what I post are actually just straight up jokes. Well, perfect. It'll it'll add some uh, comedic humor to people's uh, people's feeds on there. Ethan, thank you so much for joining in. And uh, thank you guys for listening to this episode of Tax Strategy Digest. Thank you so much, Will.